Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Welcome to the 100th episode of The Grange Point, and as we approach the two-year mark, the 104th episode, we'll be hearing with, with interviews from some of the presenters of the show and find out who they exactly they are and what they're up to. This week, we'll also be talking about space, including new planets being discovered, the dangers and complexities of black holes and what that means for us, and some of the things that, that might cause if we were going to travel as fast as the speed of light, plus the time complexities of relativity. We've talked about in the past the amazing Kepler mission, which hunts for planets, and there are other people out there working tirelessly to hunt for planets, and using the results from the Kepler Space Telescope to actually find new planets that are out there in the universe. And just this week, astronomers from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, also known as the CIA, which I think is a bit confusing, um, uh, announced through the American Astronomical Society that they found eight planets in what they call the Goldilocks Zone, of planets. So that means somewhere that's not too warm and not too cold, that is in fact just right for having conditions like Earth, which we suspect may lead to life on other planets developing. So these planets are in the right type of size, a couple of times bigger than Earth, a couple of times smaller, and in the right temperature band away from their star, this little habitable band we call the Goldilocks zone. So um, there have been eight of them, and they're all nicely numbered uh, in Kepler 438b, 442b, and so on and so on. Um, some of them are very similar in the way they orbit their star uh, to the way Earth does. Um, another one actually only circles its star every 35 days, which is really, really fast. Think about it, a year that's just over the length of a month. Um, some of them are also uh, very similar in size to Earth. One's just 12% bigger than Earth and about 70% chance of being rocky. So the other thing that we need in order to make a uh, habitable Earth-like planet is that it needs to have an iron core and rock and an atmosphere and things like that, things similar to what we have, and it's not a giant gas giant or something that's entirely devoid of life, um, burnt crust, for example. So we found that a couple of them, like 438b and the remainder in this group of eight, um, are actually highly likely to be rocky. rocky. We can't be certain just yet, only because there is no real easy way to test that without doing a lot of spectroscopy experiments. So we, we've got a pretty good chance of that. Um, some of them actually do receive more light and more solar radiation than Earth, which could give a different impetus for life developing. Um, and other ones receive slightly less, which may make it slower, cooler, and harder to develop life. But for most of these eight planets, they all have a, a size, a core probability, a temperature probability of being really, really similar to Earth. Um, and this is great because we've had some similar Earth-like planets being discovered before. Kepler 186f and 62f um, are both really close to Earth size, like 1.1 times the size of Earth. Um, but they only received much, they received much less light than Earth did, which means they're less likely to be warm and develop the same type of conditions. So thankfully, these new planets that we've discovered are actually much more similar to Earth in both the size, the length, the, the length of their years, their temperature, and their rock compositions, which means the chance of extra life being out there or maybe being able to develop has increased and some great work being done by the Kepler mission um, through the aid of the Blender program um, and the Blender analysis being done and some great work by the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics.
Here's an interesting one. As an object approaches the speed of light, it gains mass proportional to how close it is to the speed of light. It's part of the equations for... General Exactly, yes. So, if you were to get an object with mass close to the speed of light, it would gain apparent mass more and more and more to the point where it would have mass equivalent to the singularity of a black hole. Right, so it would become super dense. Exactly. Um, and it would pull objects towards it the way a black hole would through gravity. So it would act as a black hole. So are you suggesting every black hole that we see in our observable universe may actually secretly be an alien spaceship travelling faster than the speed of light? Potentially, but... <laughs> There's no way for us to prove that. There is no way to prove that. But it also means that if we were travelling in the future with spaceships that could go close to the speed of light, we could be generating singularities along the way without realising it. Well, it could be, we could be leaving behind a trail of black holes across the universe as we travelled. Yeah. This is quite problematic for, like, imagine the implications for, say, Star Wars or um, Star Trek that would be quite vast. I mean, that, that does pose a lot of issues that we'd have to solve. Warp drive would get old pretty quickly. Well, yes, unless you're using a hyperspace. I guess this is where Star, Star Wars is a bit different because Star Wars is about cutting a wormhole. Yep. So you're not actually breaking the speed of light. You're bypassing it and cutting mm. through. So that would be yep. fine. Yep. You just need a singularity to create a wormhole in the first place. NASA's actually working on a drive to travel close, but they're doing it through bending space-time. Okay, so they, what are they doing? What does that do? They create a bubble of space-time around their ship, and they increase the gravity behind them and decrease it in front of them, and it kind of pushes it forward on a wave. Now okay. the ship itself is travelling up to the speed of light in real space, but the bubble of space around it is not. It's stationary in that bubble <laughs> and like that's 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 like far end science yeah. physics thing. but it's basically making kind of like the same way that a wing works right a wing yeah. to explain works by having a lot of high pressure and low pressure on either sides of it through a differential the shape of the wing actually causes the airspeed there to travel faster and slower on different sides that difference causes a pressure difference pressure difference is actually what makes it lift. This is a pushing force. Gravity pressure difference. Gravity pressure difference at the forward and backwards to actually make it move forward. Um, there's actually, you can see concept art of what they think the ship would look like on the NASA website at the moment. Um, they, they've got a uh, very, very small scale working model cool. working in a lab. Um, it only does 0.3 or 0.2 mm-hmm. but like tiny for a you know, huge amount of energy for this tiny little thing. But even still, like, that's a huge thing to be bending space. Can we dial it back a bit? What are the requirements to make a black hole? Is it just having a lot of mass? Yeah, um, basically you generate... Well, you need to have a lot of mass in one spot, and it gets to a point where the gravity of that object is too great, and we call it a black hole because it's so great that light can no longer escape it anymore. And, and this is actually a really big area of research because we used to say, General relativity said, the black hole should be out there, and 
these things, these singularity points exist because of the maths. And then we found we couldn't find them for 50 years. And then Stephen Hawking, one of his groundbreaking research, was actually finding them. Mm. And then over time, they've actually had to adjust it and say, well, actually, um, you know, some things can get out of a black hole. And because yeah. it used to be that nothing can get out of a black hole and there's the event horizon. And slowly we've actually had to refine that theory and say that actually things can get out of it, including information, heat, other things like that. They can get actually escape the black hole. So black hole isn't quite inescapable. And it's forced us to actually redefine our view of the event horizon. And that's work that continuing right now. Yeah. So we've got this idea of a black hole, but it took us so long to find one because finding something that's nothingness is kind of hard. Um, you but, have to kind of <laughs> observe the bend of like, space, around, space it, yeah. around it. But we've also learned a lot about what can get in and can get out. And that's really caused us to change a lot of stuff. And we, we predicted that they exist, but it took us so long to actually find them. There, are, actually, there are some great um, photos from Hubble, maybe? I can't remember. Um, of a, a point which is the black hole. Mm. And there's a jet of energy coming out of it. It just quite a bit. Yeah, and you look at it and go, okay, I don't quite understand what it is. Then you realise the scale of what it is, and that that jet of energy coming out of this black hole is solar systems long. And you're looking at it, going, my wow. brain cannot comprehend the size scale that that we're dealing with there. And that's you know that's one of the things we look at all these amazing photographs and you look at them on your screen, so maybe on your computer or on your phone, and you go, oh, that looks like that's cool, and then you realise, oh. That's the size of the solar system. That's huge. That's one of the real big challenges about space is that everything is so big, so we need to travel at the speed of light to get to Alpha Centauri, in our closest neighbouring star system, in five years. Yeah. So even if, we, even if we get this crazy spaceship to reach the speed of light, even if we did that, it's still going to take us five years to get there. Yeah. It has to stay for five years. Like It has to keep going for five yeah, years. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it's... Less time for people on the ship because relativity messes with time. But yeah, um, Interstellar did a really good job of this. Yeah, explaining how the impact of that would be. But it's just the distances are just so huge that even if we get light speed travel, there's so many problems we still have to face. Like. Um, what's touched on Interstellar where you, your kids back home are now suddenly old people and have died but you know it's been five minutes for you and you haven't even reached your destination yet and there's a whole bunch of implications of that and then this is all proven as well like, um, we know like this is this yeah. will happen this is the maths that says the, if you can do this this is what's going yeah, to happen the, the clocks on satellites have to be adjusted because they run at a different speed to clocks on Earth because they're different speeds pilots because they spend a lot of time in the air Travelling at different speeds to that on Earth and some on the ground. If you have two twins, take them on the same age, right, and one of them is a, a commercial air pilot or just flies a lot, they will be younger than the person on the on the twin on the ground. Because they spent more time at a higher velocity? Correct. Noticeably younger. Not like years younger, but like nanoseconds. Astronauts who go up on the International Space Station come back a week younger than what they should be. I, I thought about this recently. Um, if you wanted to stop and have no, a keep going. This, okay. is, this is fine. Um, <laughs> okay, an average day on like a, a day on Mars is twenty five hours. Yes. Earth is twenty four hours. Yes. If people on Mars, future astronauts are on Mars, trying to live a human Earth time frame, every day they have an extra hour than they should have. Yes. Which means if they're keeping a Martian twenty five hour day, using like a regular calendar, every twenty four day, twenty four days. They're one day behind Earth. Yeah. So basically, it raises the point about 
and this is ignoring the time difference between yeah, this, this, and, this Mars is just... and like the time delay for communication. Um, you have to make a galactic standard clock. So different levels of science fiction actually have well, we have a galactic standard time and a local time, much the same way we have Greenwich Mean Time and time zones. And you probably have to do something like that, except instead of just adjusting time zones, you actually also have to adjust time weeks, days, periods for characters space travel. Hi, my name is Ricardo Canazaro, YSA Melbourne president. I'm interested in robotics and manufacturing. I'm currently studying uh, engineering at Swinburne uh, within the fields of mechatronics and robotics, and I hope to work in research and development one day. I first started my studies at Melbourne University in a general science degree um, before going on an exchange and then going back home to start my second degree um, of the Bachelor of Engineering at Swinburne uh, after knowing that I wanted to specialise in robotics. Whilst on exchange in Sweden, I was able to get involved with a student project uh, that was aimed at building an experiment to be put aboard a real-life rocket launched 80 kilometers into the atmosphere to do some meteorological data surveying. I was the optics specialist uh, in, in the project, and it was my role to develop the optics in the project, so looking at the infrared spectrum and seeing how we could do spectroscopy on a meteorological scale. This year I'll be doing an internship year with the Department of Science Technology Organisation um, which does the engineering and uh, scientific research for the military applications. So hopefully one day I would love to get my hands, in, uh, get my hands dirty with the nitty gritty uh, research and development for the defence. It's been an exciting and successful uh, seven past few years with YSA Melbourne. Um, I've been fortunate enough to get exposure to a wide uh, array of uh, science outreach experience, uh, from running camps to running outreach uh, rural activities, um, social events as well as my portfolio social coordinator for three years, um, and developing other executive members. I'm Camilla Cunha. I'm about to start my third year of my science degree and my second year of Diploma of Language. I study zoology and geoscience as both my majors and um, for my Diploma of Language I'm doing Spanish. Also, science communication wise, I do science kids parties and shows for work as well as um, I guess if you can include it um, I tutor a lot in science for people in high school. I used to write for the Young Scientists of Australia's blog, uh, um, started that up, and as well as the science show for the past three years um, at the Science Experience at Clayton. I do a bit of volunteering with wildlife and... La no, it wasn't last year, it was 2013. I went up to Darwin to help with Turtle to help collect data on flatback turtles and who would nest on the beaches so it was like how many eggs they laid, nest temperatures, that kind of stuff. I like to do a lot of animal volunteering I guess. Um, helped do relocation stuff with the little penguins down at St Kilda Pier and doing like bush surveys out in the middle of nowhere in Victoria counting lizards and counting sea cucumbers up on the Great Barrier Reef. 
This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we've talked about new planets that are potentially in the habitable zone, along with the complexities of black holes and what would happen if we were to travel close to the speed of light. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.